Welcome back to another edition of our podcast from the bridge. I'm Rick Jones of Fishbait Marketing. Firstly, I want to give a big shout out and thanks to all my friends and listeners who reached out several weeks ago to check on me during and after Hurricane Dorian. Really appreciated all the thoughts, concerns, and prayers. Charleston really dodged a bullet. Uh, We were fortunate that uh, it glanced us. It came in at a low tide instead of a high tide. We had a lot of debris and a lot of trees down, a lot of power outages, but other than that, we survived pretty well. Uh, This is the season that we call trying to reason with hurricane season, and it's always scary, so I appreciate all the, uh, the folks that reached out. We have another terrific show today with my guest angler, Bob Moran of the Volvo Car Open, the largest women's only tennis tournament in North America held right here in Charleston, South Carolina on Daniel Island each April. We'll start our show today talking about the concept of dating as part of the sponsorship sales process. And yes, we'll have yet another Tuesday tip and another On the Road with Rick segment. So let's jump right in. We've spent the last couple of weeks talking about presentations. Now, dating is the next step immediately after your presentation. Now, here's a question for you. How many of those listening out there actually got married after your first date? Or maybe you got married on your first date. Now, those that were drunk in Las Vegas don't count. Well, of course you didn't. Like romance, dating is essential in getting a deal done. So let's start up with you've just finished your presentation. How are you going to follow up? One of the things I like to do is send an immediate handwritten thank you note. I keep note cards, envelopes, and stamps in my briefcase. And usually I know who I'm going to meet with. I've already addressed uh, the envelope, put a stamp on it. Now I just have to get into the car before I leave their parking lot, jot them a note down, find the quickest nearest post office or post office box and drop it in there. It's usually there the next day. And I like to wait to write the note because I'll mention something personal that may have happened in the meeting Um, And so they immediately get that note. Uh, We also talked before about presentations about the fact that we rehearse some of the questions that they may have. And I usually will know the answer to one of the questions, but I won't answer it. I'll tell them that's a great question. Let me get back to you on that. And so what I will do is quickly get back to them within 24 hours. I will respond quickly to that request or question so that they see that we're responsive and that we're seeking answers for them. I'll also send an email asking for a time to discuss that question they've asked. That will give me a chance to get them on the phone and continue the conversation. And I use that time to ask for a timeline about their decision. I rarely, if ever, ask them after the presentation or during the presentation when they'll make a decision. I'll wait, respond with an answer to the question they have, and then ask them for that. Then it's up to you to continue to show interest without smothering. You remember some of y'all, you remember those dates that smothered you? You remember you took them out for the first date, and then she knitted you a uh, an afghan uh, that weekend and wanted to know when you could meet her parents. A little premature for that. Uh, well, that's the same thing in sponsorship sales. You've got to let them know you're interested in them, but you can't smother them. You've got to kind of do the dance. But ultimately, you got to get an answer. And the answer can be no. That's okay. I can live with yes. 
I can live with no. It's the maybes that kill you. And in many cases, maybes are no's without uh, an, an end to them. They don't want to tell you no because they like you and, and you don't win that way. You got to close the deal. Either they do or they don't. Now, I know this. We sell a lot of complex deals. And complex deals take patience. They require patience and lots of back and forth, lots of give and take, lots of questions, answers, lots of nuances. Uh, I'm working on a deal right now with a major credit card issuer with several of my clients that are going to bundle their assets. So I'm taking multiple clients, I'm putting their assets together, and I'm talking to a credit card company that will provide value for all of those Now, this is going to take a long process, but it's got potentially big returns for everybody. But it's going to require patience, a specific series of deliverables, and answers to ultimately get us to a deal. Now, I'd like to remind you all that I believe that I need to bat 300 to get to the Hall of Fame. (laughs) Well, that means I fail 7 out of 10 times. Here's what I know. Failure may actually be the best time that you learn. You learn more from failure than you do for success. So let's spend a few minutes talking about the ones that got away. You know, the fish you didn't get to the boat. Uh, I like to go back immediately after they tell me no and ask them why they are declining the opportunity. And I try to get them to be as exact and as specific as they possibly can be. You're not going to hurt my feelings. Tell me what and why this was wrong for you. I then ask them what things they might be looking for. Again, I'm trying to get them to be as exact and as specific as they possibly can be. Then I watch the trades for changes in personnel or changes in policy at the company because there's lots of staff turnover these days. I told you the story earlier on one of our earlier podcasts about selling the GoodWorks team to Allstate. Well, they turned me down twice, but then a new person became in charge of sponsorships at Allstate, found it in the files, and realized that it was really, really good for them. And so... Constantly look to see who's new in a position uh, that may help you with the next time you pitch them something. I'm also a believer in taking great notes and sharing those notes with teammates. Put information in a master contact database for later pitches. Now, next week, we're going to talk about ways to increase your close rate. But I do know this. If you're going to make sales, you got to learn to date. Now it's time for the Tuesday tip. I'm not a fan of cold calls, and neither should you. Here's how you can avoid them. Find someone who knows you and knows the person you want to talk with and have them introduce you either via social media, email, or even a telephone call. All things being even, friends buy from friends. All things being uneven, friends buy from friends. Your friends and colleagues really do want to help you. But you got to understand this. This is not a one-way street. If people are going to help you, you've got to reciprocate and help them the same way. Try this method and your trips to the plate will increase dramatically. And that's your Tuesday tip. My guest today is my pal, Bob Moran. Bob is the general manager of both the Volvo Car Open and the Volvo Car Stadium on Daniel Island here in Charleston, South Carolina. 
Uh, he heads up a tennis tournament that has been played for 47 years, firstly on Hilton Head Island at Sea Pines Plantation, and now it has been played in Charleston since 2000, which makes this coming tournament the 20th anniversary of the tournament on Daniel Island. And Bob's been with them for all 20 years. Let's welcome Bob to the bridge. Bob, it's great to have you here from the bridge. Rick, thanks for having me on. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your facility for a minute. Uh, I opened the show today talking about uh, Hurricane Dorian. Did, did y'all have any damage out there? You know, uh, we were pretty well battened down, um, so I expected worse. Um, but the only thing that really happened, we lost a tree on the outer perimeter of our parking lot, but no other damage to our courts. We were up and running um, basically on Friday, fully fully functional. So, you know, if the storm came through Thursday, we did a quick cleanup Friday morning with everything that we needed to do, and then we were back up and running. Well, that's amazing. You know, we really did dodge a bullet, but – you know, they kept saying it was going to be a Category 1, 70 miles offshore, and then, oh, whoops, it's a Category 3, and it's hugging the coast. And I, I was like, oh, my goodness. So were we. And i, I got to tell you, Rick, we have, a, we have a sister facility that we operate called uh, LTB Mount Pleasant, which is, as the crow flies, probably a mile from here. And we had significant damage to six of those courts where we're going to actually redo all the, the fence work that's, you know, that's on the perimeter of the court. Six courts had their fence is blown over basically oh that's a, that's unreal and it was very close it just shows how inconsistent this storm was you know they had power outages in weird places um that it took them a long time just because certain parts stood up but i'm i'm just thankful that there wasn't any more damage for y'all and for uh, and for the community hey let's start with your journey um i, I know you went to elon what what brought you to elon college how did you start there um I'm a Tar Heel fan, and my dream was always to go to North Carolina, but that, I wasn't that good to play in North Carolina. So um, actually, the head coach there just uh, directed me to go check Elon out, and that was the first of the next level schools I looked at, and I just absolutely fell in love with it, and um, and that was that was an easy choice. And then really just fell in love with that school and the South and everything that, that it was about. And, and did you, at that point, have aspirations to work in the golf business rather than the tennis business? Well, absolutely. So when I first got out of college, I went to work as a, as a, a what I would call a golf professional um, in the PGA at a club in, up, in uh, Westchester County, New York, because uh, I wanted to be in the golf business, no question about it. But that absolutely transitioned me into the event business. And then did you leave from there and go to Hilton Head? to the tournament? Was that your next step or was there a step in between? So uh, I worked seven years as an assistant golf professional, made great connections within within the business world, um, and then took an opportunity through one of those people I met, moved to Chicago to work for a company called Graysdale Sports Entertainment, where we basically, uh, my job was just running um, corporate events for companies that were uh, doing partnerships with the PGA Tour. So Lucent Technologies was one great example that Basically, any PGA Tour event that they were a partner with, I manage their on-site hospitality and golf program. You know, it's interesting we share that. We we actually started our first agency working for Nabisco Brands when they were the umbrella sponsor of the PGA Tour. And Charlotte was pregnant with Ryan. Ryan's 30 now, but she was pregnant with Ryan, and we were out on the tour every week 
you know, doing hospitality and customer golf outings and a bunch of stuff. So I, I remember those days fondly. Um, and some of the best people that I know and still know today were, were tournament operators during that era. Um, and so it was really, really a lot of fun. So what got you to Hilton Head? Well, it was interesting. Uh, through golf, I actually met uh, Lisa Thomas, who was a tournament director at the time, and she and her husband were both involved with golf, but she was acting as a tournament director for the family Circle Cup down in Hilton Head. Met her in New York, played some golf with them, got to know them really well, and it was kind of a time where I was in between what I wanted to do next. And she said, well, we're going to you know, come on down and see us in Hilton Head, but we're really looking at a transition to Charleston. And I absolutely loved Charleston uh, from my college days. And I said, okay, uh, you know, golf and tennis can't be that much different from an execution standpoint. So I uh, took, the, took the plunge and moved to uh, Hilton Head for, you know, roughly nine months. And it had been at Sea Pines, I think this is the 47th year of the tournament. So it had been, was it always at Sea Pines or had it been somewhere before? 27 years down in, uh, in Hilton Head at Sea Pines, yes. I think, it, I think it took a one-year hiatus, Rick, and moved to Amelia Island, but moved quickly right back. Wow. And, and obviously, Meredith Corporation, Family Circle Magazine uh, had the entitlement for a number of years. And so when it moved to Charleston, and I guess that was, what, 2000? Um, yeah, and that was right before I moved to Charleston. We moved here in May. So you moved up the coast to Charleston. You moved into this phenomenal new uh, tennis facility on Daniel Island, um, and this will now be the 20th anniversary of the event, and you've been here every step of the way. So let's talk a minute about the event and how it has evolved uh, here in Charleston over the last 20 years. Yeah, it's been it's been amazing. Uh, you know, the first uh, couple of years were with Gruner and Yar Publishing. Then Meredith uh, Corporation purchased Gruner and Yar about 10 years ago and uh, made that transition working for Meredith under the Family Circle Cup umbrella. Um, and then last year, local entrepreneur Ben Navarro purchased the, uh, purchased the uh, sanction to the event and the business, and that's where we are today. But it has been an amazing journey, Rick, just to see how things have changed from so many different aspects, from uh, how we produce events to the, the media surrounding events to how people are consuming our event. I think the biggest changes for us are, you know, we went from, you know, a couple hours of coverage on TV to, you know, this past year we were 60 plus hours, every match covered. Um, and you can consume it via any different vehicle you want. If you want to watch it on your phone, on your iPad, any way you want, um, it's available and it's nonstop. And then, you know, the amount of countries and reach we have, I think we we're, you know, close to 150 different countries and over 20 million viewers from overseas watching our event. Um, so the biggest change for me is really how our, our television footprint has just dramatically increased. And, you know, everything is now, you got to be ready because everything's live and everything is on. Um, there's no downtime when it comes to the TV coverage. Well, you talked about new ownership. You know, one of the things I, I want to explore at some point on this show is, you know, the, the connectivity of, of owners of events, teams, properties, tournaments, uh, because it really stop, starts with the, the top. You got to be, you know, as the general manager of an event like you are, being in sync with the owner, I think, is, is just crucial. Talk, talk about that and, 
his new partnership with you guys? No, you know, Ben, um, Ben Navarro came on board and it was just a little over a year ago. It was actually everything. We made the pitch to the WTA tour the week of the U S open a year ago, and it was approved, um, the week after the open. So we're about on a one year anniversary. Um, Ben is a big tennis fan. His whole family plays, uh, but he's also a big music fan. And, you know, Rick, we're, we become a music venue here uh, pretty quickly, and it's become a big part of what we've done. So his passion and his love really connect well with what we do and what we want to do. Um, and, and Ben absolutely has his opinions on what he wants to see. He wants to be best in class. And, uh, you know, he, he constantly communicates. Uh, he wants to know what kind of artists we're looking at for music. He wants to know, you know, what our plans are always for what we're going to produce. Um, and, you know, he's very easy to access and, and he's very much involved. But at the same time, you know, he, he lets us do what we need to do to get things done. Well, you're, you're like a lot of the other people we deal with. We deal so much in collegiate sports that your facilities are fixed costs. You know, and we're seeing a lot of athletic directors now ask us about, you know, how do we bring musical or other activities to our stadiums and to our arenas because they're empty, especially in the summertime. Y'all have done a great job of what I call a, a, a unique music mix there that appeals to different audiences and stuff. Talk a little bit about, you know, your concert business and how it's grown and, and what some of your plans are uh, for the future with that. Yeah, you know, when we first started in the music business, uh, you know, many years ago, we were doing a couple shows, and I'll be honest, we thought we could do it on our own, and we knew exactly what we're doing, and and uh, quickly learned that that wasn't the case. Um, there, there are a couple big players in the music business, and um, for, we were fortunate about seven years ago uh, to you know gain a meeting with AEG Live. Yep. one of the biggest concert promoters in, in, in the world. And uh, we did a test of a show together as partners. And that was, God, I think that was six years ago, seven years ago with the Bare Naked Ladies. Um, and it was a home run for us. And they loved the venue. We loved uh, the, the partnership because they knew how to deal with the acts. They had access to the tours. They knew what was coming down the road. Um, they had a great perspective and, uh, on what was coming, what was going to be good. Um, what we should be investing in, and uh, it's really worked out. We've been able to, you know, go from four to five shows to this year, uh, we'll be at twelve shows, and hopefully next year grow that to about fifteen shows. And yeah, you're right. We we really try and do a wide variety. Um, you know, country does really well for us, but at the same time, uh, you know, we brought uh, young artists from Disney and JoJo Siwa, and I think I had seven thousand uh, ten and under <laughs> fans in the in the audience. And that was a whole different experience, but it was a great experience. Um, so we are trying to be as diversified as we can because we need to be, but at the same time, uh, bring in some acts that uh, that really attract uh, a crowd, not just from Charleston, but from the greater region. Well, I think one of the key learnings you mentioned is that, you know, you can do everything, but you don't have to do everything, especially if you find you can have a partner like AG or Live Nation or somebody that can actually bring expertise. And I think that's a key lesson. You know, I'm, I'm a big believer in what I call riches and niches. And when you get out of your niches, sometimes it can create a lot of problems. But if you bring a partner that's in that niche, it really adds value to what you're doing. I, I love, you know, my favorite event y'all do is, you know, annually Hootie and the Blowfish do their kind of back to school concert where they, you know, fill the school bus up with 
school supplies and stuff like that. And then I was privileged when Darius Rucker first got into the country music business. He was the opening act for Dirks Bentley's tour. And he opened for Dirks in every city but one. When it came to your facility, Dirks opened for Darius because Dirks' mama didn't raise no fool. He knew that Darius was a much bigger draw in Charleston. But I thought that was a classy thing for Dirks Bentley to open for Darius Rucker in your stadium. Talk about that event and the Hootie events. Well, you know, that that was a that was a class act by Dirks because you were right. That was the only uh, – the only event that uh, he did uh, open for for Darius, and you know what, I, I, that that event resonates so strongly for me because it was an absolute rainy day, rainy night, and they had a large thrust that came out from underneath the stage, so it was uncovered, and so many people. I don't think anyone left, and it no. was consistent rain the whole time. No one left; they just hunkered down, and Darius was out in that thrust getting rained on all evening, and it was just a, a special event. Um, so I, I will never forget that. But you're right. The, the hooting of blowfish, uh, we've been doing that. I think we're we, we this is the first year we haven't done it in 15 years because they are out on their first tour in many, many years. And I can't tell you how happy I am to see the boys out there and just knocking out of the park with stadium shows and really, really doing well. Uh, they're releasing a new album on November 1st. Uh, so it's 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 fun for us to watch because, you know, what we what a lot of people don't know is that is that fundraiser and, and, and school supplies and everything the band does for the local community. But that's the only show that we do without a promoter partner is because 15 years ago, everyone just said, you know what, Hootie doesn't, they don't have it anymore. They're, they're not the band that they used to be. They're not going to sell tickets. So we decided as the band and us being the stadium that we were going to do this on our own and we didn't need a partner. We'll do it. We came to an agreement and first year we sold it out, went about five years of selling one night out and looked at him and said, hey guys, I think we can sell two nights out. And they were a little nervous. We did it, sold two nights out for the last God, seven, eight years. And it's just been a great, great partnership and a great thing for the community. Um, you know, I can always say, yes, I'm disappointed we're not doing it this year, but I can't. Again, I'm so happy for the guys that, you know, they're out there doing what they love and they're being very, very successful. And I'm, I'm looking forward to what the album has to say. But. It's been special for us. Well, I'll tell you a fun story about Darius. You know, one of my clients is the Grand Ole Opry, and he became a member of the Grand Ole Opry, and and they do it really uniquely. You don't know. You you know, you get to play the Opry, but to become a member is very, very special. And he was doing a show at the Opry, and Brad Paisley stood up in the audience and said, Darius, would you like to be a member of the Grand Ole Opry? You know, and, of course, Darius broke down. I mean, it's so – emotional but one of the cool things is when you're a member of the opry you have a plaque a, a, a brass plaque with your name on it in the lobby and so your name is there with you know johnny cash and loretta lynn and minnie pearl and just all of the great artists that have ever been members of the grand Ole opry well darius when he comes in to play a show he rubs his name and coming and going and so his plaque is discolored because he rubs it and so you know they've talked about hey Darius we got to get you a new plaque you're about to rub your name off (laughs) Uh, but he does that for luck and I I just think that's such a great story about him 
and you know what he has meant uh, and what country music has meant to him and what music has meant to him. But he's he's such a great guy. Let let's spend a little time. We we talk a lot about corporate sponsorship on the show. You know what? How did you get Volvo after you know decades of Family Circle? Um, you know, tell me the process of getting Volvo on board and how that how that worked out. Sure. You know, so um, Family Circle was always in a good place. It's it's they were a leader in women's tennis and women's sports uh, for so many years. Um, so having a new partner come on as a title had to be the right fit. And so when Volvo was looking at um, where they were going to build their new plant, I had uh, the state come to me and say, hey, you know, we need a tent post forum here uh, that, that can, you know, lead the way for their, for their, new, um, their new plan. And we want you to be part of that process as we recruit. Um, and the, the, kind of the funny story there, Rick, is the year before they made a decision during the tournament, uh, this helicopter kept flying over our stadium. And I got really upset, called uh, our police compound and said, hey, whatever we can do to get this helicopter from, you know, buzzing over the stadium, I'd really appreciate it. And it turned out, I learned a couple months later, that, that was the Volvo execs taking a look at the stadium. <laughs> <laughs> so, Glad you didn't shoot them down. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> but um, so we became part of the pitch, to be honest. Um, part of the pitch to uh, lure Vol- the Volvo to the greater Charleston area. Um, and it worked out. And, and again, that decision was, hey, this is not someone who's going to come in and walk away. They're coming in and they're going to call Charleston home. It's... Um, it was really important in Charleston. Um, they weren't going to come in, build a stadium and not be part of the community. They're going to be here for the long haul. So we thought, okay, let's do this for the, the three-year term um, and, and just win them over on who we are and what we are. And, you know, after three years, they came back on their own and, and renewed that for another three years with the stadium and everything that goes along with it. And they found great value with it. Um, but you got to be lucky sometimes, Rick, you know, I, you know, if Volvo wasn't building a plan here, I don't know if we would have ever even had a discussion. Um, so it was the right time, the right place. And the fact that they were coming to Charleston made all the difference. Well, my definition of luck is when preparation meets opportunity. And so on one hand, yeah, you were fortunate. I'm not sure you were lucky. You were fortunate in that, you know, you were part of that process, but you did have your antenna up knowing that somebody new was going to come and not only come when you build a plant, you're going to be here for a long, long, long time. And, um, and that became, and I think Volvo as a brand and tennis as a brand are a perfect fit, especially women's tennis, because, you know, Volvo sells a disproportionate number of cars to females. It's considered one of the safest cars around. And, you know, a lot of what I call tennis moms are driving Volvo. So I think it was a, a perfect fit. But Bob, you have a, your tournament has a reputation and you personally have a reputation of being just great to sponsors. Y'all get sponsors. You've had SunTrust for years and years and other sponsors like them. Uh, talk about sponsor servicing and the things that y'all do and, and, and why that's so important. You know, you're right, Rick. It is about the service side of things. Um, and I think that comes back from when I was a, in the golf business, it was all about service there. Um, and then when I transitioned uh, into this business, um, there was already a really strong game plan uh, laid by the Family Circle Cup team about how to service. And what we focus on is, you know, what we're going to under promise, over deliver as much as we can. If there are opportunities that come up to make it a better experience for our partners, we're going to do it. Uh, it's about the communications all the time. 
Um, but what we've learned and, you know, with a new partner or a long-term partner, they come on board and what we hear from them is, my God, you guys are always there. You're, there's always someone to take care of any need we have. Um, so the on-site experience for them is, hey, when you're here, we're going to be there for you. And in the lead up, we're in constant communications with everything that we do from checklists and everything else uh, to make sure that nothing slips through the cracks. Because, Rick, you know just as well as I do, if you have 30 things that you need to do for your partner and you do 29, the focus is going to be on that one of 30 that you missed. And so, you know, that's always on our, on our mind from a service standpoint. We want to make sure that we're hitting everything. And if we don't, then we failed. Yeah, I tell, I, I tell everybody that it's, it's never the bear in the woods, it's the mosquitoes. <laughs> and, uh, and we're in the mosquito business. I mean, it, it is about all of the little things. Uh, and y'all do that unbelievably well. Uh, and, you know, we talk to lots of sponsors uh, on an ongoing basis, and y'all always get really, really high marks for, for doing the little things and going the extra mile uh, from that standpoint. Talk a little bit about a day in the life of a GM. I mean, you're the GM of not only the facility, but the tournament itself. There are a lot of balls in, in the air that you're having to juggle. Let's talk about some of those. Sure. I mean, on a day-to-day basis, number one, I've got a great team here. Uh, a lot of the people that are working with us now have been with us for 20 years. Um, so I'm very fortunate to have a team that's been involved for a long term. Uh, but then I also have a group of people who've been with us for a couple of years uh, who bring a whole wealth of knowledge um, to us that, you know, sometimes, Rick, when you, you've been doing things for 20 years, you need another set of eyes. And in that case, we have a really good combination. So, number one, it's great to have uh, a great team because it makes life easier. But, you know, we're let's see, we're in September tournaments in April. Um, t- today will definitely involve some player conversations as we're coming out of the open, uh, U.S. Open, as we spent the last couple weeks up in New York. And that time up there is not watching a lot of tennis. It's a lot of meetings, um, a lot of meetings with agents and players and, and trying to uh, get some commitment for April. Um, it's meeting with sponsors, uh, you know, trying to renew contracts, uh, also looking for some new opportunities. Uh, so, to, you know, on a day like today, I'm going to have player conversations, a couple agent calls going to have I have multiple um, sponsorship calls today. At the same time, we've got to get the fences fixed uh, at the other facility because we're hosting a woman's sixty thousand dollar challenger at the end of the month. So we got a team over there getting bids on fences because we got to get those turned around in a couple weeks. Um, I'm looking around as I'm sitting in the office here and we've got a full facility of uh Ladies playing today, um, every court is packed, so that's always a good thing. Um, and then I will definitely have a call um, with AEG to talk about a couple acts. We just signed um, uh, a couple shows for May of next year, so that gives you perspective. That's how far out we're looking. We're looking May, June, July right now for shows for 2020. Um, and let alone we have Casey Musgraves coming on May 20th, so a couple of my teammates will make sure that uh, they're doing everything they can to, to prepare for that. Um, so every aspect every day uh, is being covered from the professional tennis to the day-to-day tennis to the concert business that we're doing. Um, my first meeting this morning just out of the blue was uh, a local charity called the Pat Tillman Run. They're losing their, their host site uh, for April to do, uh, to do their run. I'm really, you know, as you know, Rick, I have a couple brothers in the military, so it's important to me. 
Um, just having a conversation at breakfast this morning about how we can host that event uh, in April to help them out. So, yeah, it's every yeah, day. Let's talk cool. a little bit about player recruitment because y'all also get high marks. I think having a tennis tournament in Charleston doesn't hurt. All God's children want to come to Charleston, but 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 but, but you know, tennis is a worldwide business now, and players get to choose what tournaments they want to come to. And y'all consistently had an amazing field over the years. Talk about that process. Sure. No, absolutely. Um, It is, you know, the number one players don't have to come here. They don't, they're they're not, they don't have to. So we've got to do everything we can to make them want to come. Uh, Number one points uh, for our event are one of, you know, we're one of 20 premier events in the world. So our points are higher than most. Uh, that they can earn by playing here. So that helps. Um, but then we've got to kind of throw everything else at them uh, when it comes to coming to Charleston and not going to Monterey, Mexico, Bogota, Colombia, Stuttgart, Germany. Those are all venues that we uh, that are in our uh, calendar um, time frame that we compete against. So it's Charleston, yes. Um, it helps now that we, you know, we have a direct flight from Miami where the players are the week before us. So they can hop on a flight directly from Miami to Charleston. And I can tell you, Rick, that's important um, because ease of travel is very high on the list of players. Um, the way we treat them when they get here um, is important. Uh, it's how we pick them up, how we, you know, the hotel they're staying in, um, all those things that we're responsible for. But number two, Rick, is food. Ease of travel is number one. Food is number two. Um, so we are constantly tweaking our menus because we feed all the players and their entourages, coaches, trainers, what have you, when they're on site. So we are constantly updating our food choices. We talk to players on a consistent basis about um, what they like, what they need, what we should be doing, um, and then their overall experience. And that conversation, Rick, starts the day after they leave, and it continues throughout the year. Uh, we are constantly recruiting and doing everything we can to uh, – Make this the place they want to come because, as you know, Rick, they have they spend four weeks in the states, and a lot of the players are just ready to get back to Europe or overseas uh, instead of spending that last week here in Charleston. We are not the easiest week, so we go the extra ten yards to make sure that we get them here, that their experience is great, and they want to come back. I've seen recently where I guess British Airways now has a flight um, in and out of here um, a couple times a week to. Uh, direct to Heathrow, I'm wondering if that would help you too, if they knew they could get to Europe without having to go through Kennedy or, or Atlanta. Um, that has been become a big part of our pitch. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. it's Thursday and Sunday. Um, so we, we do uh, let them know that the ease of getting back on a direct flight is here and it's available. And, you know, I'm hoping that that expands more as we move, but you're 100% right. That definitely helps the conversation. Well, this has been a great conversation today because one of the things I think we've been able to focus on is complexity. You know, this it's complex. Hey, I need a sponsor, and they're building a plant in South Carolina. How do I get local government, state government engaged in that discussion? Secondly, how do I engage with players, their entourage, their agents, their managers to make sure that they're coming how do I keep sponsors happy? How do I look at booking musical acts way, way out? And then how do I fix a fence today? <laughs> and that's just the day in the life of a GM of a major event. Um, I want to ask you one more question. You, you've always been innovative. What Any new plans for the future? 
uh, for the tournament or for some of the activities that you're going to do around the tournament? And absolutely. Uh, you know, we, we are. We're always looking at what's next. And, you know, when you asked that question earlier, Rick, what's changed from, you know, year one to year 20? Um, year one, it was all about the tennis. And year 20, it's all about, even though we focus a lot on the players and everything we talked about, but everything beyond that is now what's the focus. What are we doing outside the lines? What are we doing for our fans? You know, so, and, and to our point, our, my owner is challenging me with that. What, what can we do to bring more to the table um, for fans to attract them to tennis? And we believe that if we get them here, that they're going to want to watch tennis and stay. So, you know, we're talking about last year we, uh, we did yoga on site. Um, before matches for one day. We're going to expand that. We did a gospel brunch last year and brought in uh, a, a gospel choir that was, you know, year one, I love the attendance to be more, but the experience those people had was out of this world, and we're just going to elevate that. Um, we invested a lot more in the uh, dining experience. We built a double, you know, double-decker tent last year and put a uh, restaurant on the second floor took reservations for the first time, and it was a home run. How do we continue making that better? Our in-stadium piece was, you know, we added ribbon boards to the side to make that experience for fans a little bit better. We're going to add that to the whole facility. So second tier will have ribbon boards. We're adding more video in-stadium and, and, and investing in what that content looks like. And then finally, what are we good at? We're good at tennis and music, but we haven't done music during tennis. So this year we are, we're that final weekend, Saturday night, we are going to bring an act in and, and engage tennis fans with new music, something we haven't done before. So we are constantly trying to innovate and we're always listening. We're watching, we're seeing what others are doing, be it the U S open or Miami or Wimbledon. What is everyone doing? That's making it better. So it is about innovating, but I'm also about, if I need to steal an idea, I will just to make that experience better for our fans. Well, Coach Wooden always said, when you're through improving, you're through. <laughs> and I think that is the case in our business today. Bob, I can't thank you enough for joining us today and being a part of From the Bridge. Rick, I can't, appre I can't tell you how much I appreciate it, but uh, if you're not closed, the, the lesson for everybody, Rick, and I don't know if you remember that, but when I first got in this, this job 20 years ago, I think it was probably 19 years ago, my job was to kind of figure out the Charleston community. And I heard this guy named Rick Jones lived in, in Charleston and was best in class at what he did. And I hope you remember that, that out of the blue call you got from me to just to have lunch one day. And I'll never forget it because uh, you acted as a mentor to me when I first got here. And I'll never forget that. Well, I appreciate it. You've done a great job there. The tournament is just one of the world-class events. It, it makes our city better. It makes our state better. Uh, and I'm really, really proud of the job you've done. So again, pal, thanks for being with us today. Thank you, Rick. Let's close today's show with another segment of On the Road with Rick. We've been talking tennis a little bit today, and I went firstly to this place while attending the Miami Open Tennis Tournament many, many years ago. And I'm talking about Joe's Stone Crabs in Miami Beach, Florida. I absolutely love Stone Crabs. Maybe my favorite seafood of ever. Now, Stone Crabs are available only certain months. So if you go to Miami in the summertime, you're not going to get them because they're not available. They're available in the wintertime. Of course, you don't want to go to Miami in the summertime. <laughs> you want to go to Miami in the wintertime. 
Well, stone crabs are interesting in that they harvest and can keep the crab alive. Because what they do when they catch the crab is they pull off one claw and throw the crab back in with that second claw. And guess what happens? It regenerates. That claw will grow back and they'll be able to be caught again and be able to pull off another one and regenerate over and over again. Now, there was a guy named Joe Weiss, and he came to Miami in 1913 with his wife, Jenny, and they were both Hungarians who had been living in New York. And when they got to Miami, they ran a lunch stand at Smith's Bathing Casino there on Miami Beach until they opened their own restaurant in 1918. And they served seafood, but not stone crabs. In 1921, they built an aquarium in Miami Beach, and one day one of the scientists from the aquarium asked if they cooked and served stone crabs. He had come in for breakfast, and Joe laughed and said, no, we don't, because no one would want to eat them. Well, guess what? That scientist came back for lunch that day, and he brought a sack of stone crab claws. And after lunch, they boiled them up. And guess what? They were delicious. And so from that point on, they started serving them cold and cracked with coleslaw, hash browns, and a very, very special mustard mayonnaise sauce. And the rest is history. They now sell more stone crabs than anywhere else in the world. They serve a lot of other great dishes, but hey, you want the stone crabs. They're sold by the size and the weight. I love a half dozen of the mediums. You will too. So that's it from the bridge today. We hope you'll listen in again next week. This is Rick Jones signing off. This has been your captain, Rick Jones, from the bridge. If you like what you hear, please share, subscribe, and leave a five-star review on your favorite podcast directory. Everybody wants me to be what they want me to be But I can't be nobody else but me